But even for us, having built that, it was tough raising money. So I'd say that was the most challenging. Raising money overall was really, really challenging. I'm really ex excited to see how things are changing now. There's a lot more VC money and especially VC money going towards Philippines because it used to be really Indonesia centric when we were raising and now money is finally coming to the Philippines and people are realizing that, hey, this is a really good market. There's so many opportunities, so many talented people. So I'm super happy about that basically. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Tim Grassin is the co-founder and CCO of KendoPay, a Philippine startup that offers employee benefits. They were recently acquired by Tonic, a Series B fintech in the Philippines. Before KendoPay, Tim founded, scaled, and sold two agencies focused on design and advertising in Canada. Find out how he started his agencies fresh out of his first job, the surprising way he ended up in the Philippines, and what it's like for him now after the acquisition was announced. Hi, Tim. So glad to have you on the show. It's so nice to finally meet you. I still remember when I think I emailed you when I saw your subscribe to Backscoop. So really great getting to speak with you today. Hey, Amanda. Great uh, being here. And thanks for inviting me. I'm super glad to be on your show. I think for me, I've always come across TendoPay since a while back. So you've been sort of present in the ecosystem since the early days, at least for me. And I really just want to get into a bit more about your early life. I think that's something we always do with everyone on the podcast. So the first question I have for you is, what was your childhood like? What is your earliest memories of where you grew up? So I've grown up kind of all over the place. My dad was working for the French embassy. So the first few years we spent in France, and then we started moving over around in Europe and Africa. So my childhood was quite diverse. I don't think it's the typical childhood where you stay in one place and make a lot of friends and kind of have those childhood friends. I've had to always constantly adapt to new environments, try to make friends in new places. And it's always starting from scratch. A lot of people see it as, as a struggle. I, in hindsight, see it more as an opportunity. It helped me sort of develop these social skills and get exposed to a lot of different environments. You know, now that I'm almost 37, I look back at it and think that was quite quite something for a kid to go through. But I I look back and I'm pretty grateful for my parents to expose us to that. It's definitely shaped me in the way I am today. And uh, it also shaped my entrepreneur career in a way, being exposed to, you know, the diplomat kids and other sort of not entrepreneurs per se, but leaders of industry, because in my schools, those were the circles that went to international or French schools, for better or for worse. But it opened my eyes on a lot of things that I didn't know as a kid. And even though my dad was working for, for the embassy, it didn't mean we were rich by any means, but we were exposed to a lot of wealthy people. 
And I think that sort of drove me to want more and to kind of elevate, I guess, my lifestyle and other things that eventually will lead to leadership. We get to that in, in our discussion. I think that part about your life was super interesting for me because I've had a lot of friends who had also been like sort of kids of diplomats or other expats and they have they quite have a similar experience. So I think my question for you is having moved around so many times, how would you manage sort of the gap between having the typical childhood versus your childhood back then? Like I assume you didn't have a lot of long-term friends. So does that mean you spent a lot of time on your own or how did you sort of cope with that? Well, making friends came easy after a while. And because I was exposed to that, that challenge very early on, our first move was when I was six. And back then, you don't think about it very much. It just happens organically. You make friends. And I think that skill set just grew with me over time. So as much as I am a, a bit of a loner in many ways, I like doing things on my own. I was never like not surrounded by friends. So yeah, I didn't have that issue in a way. So you never felt sort of lonely because instead of thinking like, oh, I don't have any long-term friends, it's kind of lonely having to go here to a new country again. It was more like, okay, I'll just make new friends again. And it's the same situation every time. Yeah, it's hard going into a friendship, especially as you grow older, you get more conscious of what's going to happen, knowing that you will lose them after usually three or four years. However, when I was young, we didn't have internet, so it, it happened over like slow mail. But I did try to maintain those relationships, even though it was only a couple of years before they died down. But I never felt alone in that way. I don't have the childhood friends that most people have from back home, quote unquote, but I still do have a network of friends, especially throughout high school when I made friends in Kenya that I still maintain now that technology is a lot more prevalent. I'm able to have groups of friends on WhatsApp and I still stay in touch, not as much as you know I, I would like to, but they feel kind of my hometown friends now. So I, ha I do have that. And then moving around so many times um, in your childhood, could you share which countries you moved to and how long you stayed in each? Sure. So the first country we moved to was Finland, and that was for four years. Then we moved to England for three, then Denmark for a year. And then we came back to France for a little while, and then we went to Kenya for three years. Would you say that Kenya became more of your home base than any of the countries? I would say so because I was older. I went there when I was 13 or 14 and I was a lot more aware. The friends that I made became sort of more like close friends because like I said, I had the maturity to build those relationships. And after we all went to university, like I said, we stayed in touch because we had internet at that point. So it, it, there was a big shift there. And also at that age, you get to explore a lot more on your own. You have more independence. So I was able to appropriate that country to myself without my parents necessarily be being beside me throughout every experience like the rest of the countries. So in that sense, it did become more of my home country. And I still feel very attached to Kenya. I have a lot of friends over there and throughout the world. And we have that sort of nostalgia of Kenya that we voice out every now and then when we message each other. What was it like growing up in Kenya? Like, could you share a bit about your experience growing up there for us? I don't know about the culture, about the food or anything. So 
it's a very weird country as an expat because as much as it was one of the most developed African countries when I was there, it was still very risky. So we did have to live in compounds where fences were electric electrified. We had guards. We couldn't go anywhere without a driver. So you always live with that risk. But when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, I didn't sort of realize the risk and you're kind of worry free at that age or you feel invincible because you haven't really lived through any trauma, at least in my case. So I felt like super empowered. It's a warm country as opposed to Europe, you know, in Finland and the UK, Denmark, those are all cold countries or rainy. So it was super fun and a great group of friends. And again, like I said, the expat community meant that we had a lot of access and, you know, every group of friends either had great villas or this and that. And on top of that, we were in a small school. It was the French school and every class had between four and 12 students as opposed to, you know, the 30 or 40 students that I had in France. So you felt a lot more connected to the teachers. They were more attentive to the students, meaning our education sort of elevated itself. And I went from France, where I was kind of bored and not engaged in my classes, to being super passionate about every topic, which was super weird for me. And I went from, you know, an average student to a straight A student because that engagement made me feel like, oh, you can spend a few more minutes with me to understand a topic. Now I'm going to pursue that topic and try to excel at it. So that was such an advantage. And I kind of wish every person could experience it although it's quite unrealistic. And then, you know, it's a fantastic scenery. So being exposed to safaris, white sand beaches, warm weather, all of that was just incredible. And then the food. So it's not as diverse as you have in Europe, but the stuff that we had there, especially like the ingredients, a lot of great avocados, mangoes. Well, as a Filipino, you're exposed to all those tropical foods. But for me, that was novel. So I really enjoyed it. So overall, it was like an A-plus experience. I always dream of going back at some point. It's just gone downhill a little bit from what I gather. So I don't I don't want to be disappointed when I go back and put it up on such a pedestal. What's one thing about your experience in Kenya that you love that you think more people should know about? Well, people often overlook the fact that it's on the Indian Ocean and that the, the beaches are absolute pure white sand so it would remind you of palawan for example and there's 500 kilometers of white sand beach ocean front so it's a it's a really wonderful place to go to the ocean because people over overly think of it as a safari destination but i'm guilty for me, of the same really, thoughts <laughs> i would have never thought there to be because, a beach there <laughs> exactly and one thing that was really cool is that was my first exposure to kite surfing I used to see people kite surfing and it was very early on in the scene. And I always thought, man, that's so cool. And I didn't have the budget to to kind of invest in, in kite surfing at 17 years old, but I ex- exposed me to it. And like, that was kind of my dream. And as soon as I made a little bit of money with my first venture, the first thing I did was buy a kite surf equipment, go to the Caribbean. Cause back then after that, I was in North America in Canada and then start kite surfing. So all of these things, make sense and they fit into each other within my story. 
So what made you want to go to Canada after high school and instead of going back to, I don't know, France or some other place? So I did go back to France, matter of fact, after I graduated from high school. And my eyes were set on becoming a diplomat. Obviously, I was exposed to that. And I thought, hey, becoming a diplomat sounds pretty cool if I can get the same lifestyle as I had as a kid. So my eyes were set on doing political graduate school in France. But to get in it in France, you need to go through a prep school program of two years. You, you have to pass an entrance exam and then you're in. And then it's a little more smooth sailing, but it's a very hard barrier to entry. So I went to France and I started doing this prep school. And about a year in, when we had to start deciding which schools we wanted to go in and which exams we wanted to take, I realized it's a very, very competitive format and the entrance exams are super tough. And I was starting to realize maybe I wouldn't be able to get what I wanted. So I still went to all these business school and political school fairs after the first year to expose myself to all the different schools throughout France. And I ran into an old colleague who had like graduated a year before me from prep school. And he told me that he was in business school in, in Quebec, in Montreal. And I didn't know anything about Quebec or Montreal, to be honest. But he was praising it and telling me how wonderful the city was. And on top of it, there was no entrance exam. And as a matter of fact, if I was in this prep school, they would sort of pay me to come to this business school because they were trying to actively recruit French students because they needed to fill a quota. So they would give me like a an, like a sort of a scholarship to come in. So I, like after a few weeks of sort of cogitating on that idea, I decided to take the plunge and to apply to that school. And lo and behold, I got approved very, very fast. So that that's what pushed me to go to North America is the fact that there was this amazing program that was bilingual, French and English. And I'm bilingual since I'm French. And the like the diploma was valid in France in case I wanted to come back in the future. So it all made sense. I don't have I was happy I didn't have to take that entrance exam and I could have a degree that was, if not as good as the French ones, better in, in certain ways. And I got to go to North America, which was kind of a, also a dream to sort of travel there. I hadn't done it yet. And I also realized going back to France that. I have this travel bug that I don't really want to live in France. I always want to travel. And so it was a perfect combination to go to Montreal. And on top of that, they gave you a scholarship, right? <laughs> exactly. So I, I got a scholarship, meaning not only did, it, did the school tuition fee cost less than the French schools, but on top of that, I was going to get paid <laughs> part of the tuition by the, the school. So it just made sense. And what was your experience there for the, the four years? in university and then how did that shape you and bring you to your next step for your career so actually just before going to to that school i had done an internship in between my two years of prep school and i had reached out to a, a childhood friend who lived in london and his dad was this manager in a hedge fund and you know hedge funds didn't mean anything to me i was just interested in doing an internship and I reached out to him and he said, yeah, I got this hedge fund. You can come as an intern for two months and work in the city in London. And I was like, okay, I mean, cool. I don't know anything about it, but thanks for the opportunity. So I went there and then I was like, 
wow, this is really fascinating. These really brilliant people are doing these like sort of global deals, which are super fascinating. It turned out to be a fund of hedge funds, meaning they only invest in hedge funds. So they get exposed to the cream of the crop of people in finance. And this two-month adventure in London just got me super excited about finance, which I didn't know I would <laughs> get excited about at all. And so the, um, that specific guy who gave me the internship, he said, look, go to business school, do your graduate your graduate degree in finance and like get this certain grade and I'll get you into any hedge fund you want after that. So I had this end goal. Then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go study finance, I guess. So I, I did the, the courses in finance in the, the business school is called HEC Montréal. So it's a very reputable business school in Quebec. And I started this journey of learning about finance. The idea was to get into investment banking after that in order to get into hedge fund management. And over the three years, I also got this part-time job in finance in Montreal, which was helping me pay for my studies. And I really liked that job. It was cool. I was exposed to some interesting, like my boss was super interesting. I built a really good relationship with him. But over the course of the two years I worked there during my studies, this boss of mine told me that he personally thought I was not cut out to be an employee. So I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, you're really good at what you do, but you have too many ideas and you're too vocal about them to be an employee. Like, I love having our chats, but you're really <laughs> insubordinate, basically, he told me. And he said, I don't think you're cut out for a job. And I, at first, I thought, okay, <laughs> this is a bit insulting, but he does have a point. Like, it's hard for me to shut up when I have an opinion, and I have many, many opinions. And basically, when I graduated, I told him, look, I really appreciate everything you've done for me, but obviously, I'm not going to continue here. My idea was to get into investment banking, but after what you told me, I might try myself at entrepreneurship. And I had started to kind of network with different entrepreneurs. And I don't know if you remember, but I, I don't know how old you are exactly. But when I graduated in 2007, like tech startups were a huge thing. The iPhone just came out, apps were starting to boom, and everyone wanted to be in a startup. And as a young graduate, I wanted to be in a tech startup. So I actually, over the summer after I graduated, I started coming up with a business plan for a sort of a video game, which was not exactly a video game. It was a social betting platform where people could bet against each other on the outcomes of certain events like TV shows. Back then, Lost was a big show and everyone was always on the edge of the seat, like what's going to happen in the next episode? And you could bet on what would happen, basically. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the game was called Predico. And it, like I actually took out whatever money I had saved, which was not a lot, and I invested in a dev shop to build that platform for me. And we actually started getting momentum and everything was going well. But I did realize that my funds were running low. And I'm probably like starting to talk about other stuff you might have questions about, but let's see if we can do it organically. But essentially, I started running out of money. And at that time, I was rooming. My roommate was this guy from business school, and he was a big Apple fan, and he had discovered the power of Keynote as opposed to PowerPoint, and he was doing all these crazy cool Keynote presentations for fun during university. And I saw that as an opportunity because in my previous job, I was doing presentations, but I sucked at it. And I thought, if someone's good at presentations and the companies need presentations, 
why don't companies hire presentation designers to do it better? Because usually the deals we would pitch with these presentations were worth millions of dollars. And I was building these presentations with no design skills and no storytelling skills. So it was just kind of a mismatch. So I thought, you know, I think this is a good business opportunity. I'm not like, I've never built a business, but this sounds like a business opportunity. So I pitched this to my roommate and I told him, if I can sell your presentations, would you be willing to make some and we partner up or whatever? At that point, it was completely informal. And he said, sure, I don't have a job. So let's, let's try it out. And that's how Stinson Design was born, basically in my living room, thinking that there was a business opportunity. And the reason I mentioned this is because I started working on Stinson Design while this game was being developed because it was an expensive development and I had very limited funds. So I thought, let me do something on the side to make a bit of money while I build out this game, which in my mind, the game was going to be the big thing. And Stinson was just like a small thing to make a bit of money. And over the next few months, I started networking with local companies in Montreal. And I was this 22-year-old dude with a suit that was oversized and I looked ridiculous. But I was very passionate about what I was pitching. And a few companies, big-name companies, started like taking interest in what I was saying. I guess they liked the hustle. And they gave me opportunities to build these presentations for them. And uh, my partner was gifted at presentations i was gifted at writing like improving the content of the presentation and doing copywriting and so that that partnership worked out really well and we started growing it it was not crazy but we started making a bit of money slowly and i realized okay there's an opportunity there i'm taking that money putting in my game and let's continue that way and there was a this interesting turning point where the game was done and i applied to an accelerator the accelerator doesn't exist anymore, so there's no point in, in name dropping it. But I got into this accelerator, and they offered to pay 150000 for 12% of the equity. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. This was really interesting. But at that same time, I got a massive contract for Stinson Design. And so that was like a big fork in my story where I was like, what do I do? Do I go with this completely uncertain product where there is money to fund it, but there was something in me that didn't believe it in 100%. And I thought, I, I'm kind of playing with fire here. Whereas there was this huge contract with Stinson Design, and it was continuous growth on that service. And I thought, man, I kind of, I'd be dumb not to pursue this. It's consistent growth, good profit margins. And basically, that's when I decided to drop Predico and to focus exclusively on Stinson Design. I moved to Toronto because the big contract required me to be in Toronto. And basically, it grew from there. And I pursued Stinson Design full-time, and, and it really grew like significantly over the years. And then what was it like growing Stinson Design over the years? I know that you eventually got it acquired, right? But was that always the plan? Not at all. <laughs> uh, and I'll be very honest with you. I'm not the planning type. So these days, I, I kind of have better ideas of what to expect. But back then, it was more like, Day by day, I was maybe planning a month ahead thinking, oh, I'd love to reach this milestone in our revenue. That was about it. So the plan was to keep growing it and to see how far I could take it. And at that point, I was interested in every part of the company. I was interested in the design. I was interested in the storytelling. I was interested in the selling. I was interested in becoming a marketer, like growing it via SEO, via ads, AdWords and stuff like that. So. 
I was really all over the place. And I think that's a mistake every entrepreneur makes at first because they don't know how to delegate. They don't know they're specialists for everything. It seems like you figured out some of those things very early on. So kudos to you. But I was trying everything. But one thing I realized is that I was really interested in marketing. And I started building a website that was a lot better, that was more optimized for conversion. I started building ad campaigns that were performing really well. And I was really interested in optimizing them. So I figured out a formula to sort of lead traffic and convert them and then do the sales pitches myself. And like that was a really good winning formula. So the growth story is really just rinse and repeating on that. And I really mostly did the sales myself until I sold it. The scaling part was mostly on the designers, project management, and sort of story storyboarding. But the rest, sales and marketing, I did myself until I sold. And the selling part was really more of a personal relationship conundrum whereby I had brought in my uh, now ex-girlfriend into the business a little later on. And as we separated, I had started Candy Banners in the same time. And when when I decided to continue Candy Banners and she decided to continue Stinson Design, just made more sense for her to acquire the business and to continue growing it and for me to continue on Candy Banners. So that's how the acquisition happened. And then when you were growing Stinson Design, what was it like growing a company for eight years? Were there like lots of shifts where you had to change a lot of your strategies? Or do you think most of it was really similar throughout the eight years? I mean, it's hard to kind of trace back exactly in detail. It feels to me like it was relatively linear, but there, there was sort of pivots here and there, especially on project management and the design approach, time management, and things like that. But overall, I think it was fairly linear. And it was always the same model with just more people doing it because we had more clients. I never shifted gears in any way other than that. I know that post-acquisition, a lot of stuff changed. But during my time there, it was fairly linear. I see. And then... I think there are actually lots of people who are more interested in building their own agencies nowadays. So mm. maybe you could give us like a look into what did it look like at its peak for Stinson when you were still there? Like how many sales did you do or how much revenue did you do if you're able to, to share those numbers? Yeah, I can definitely share some numbers. So at the peak of Stinson, when I sold, I think we were close to 2 million a year in revenue. The profit margins were spectacular. It was over 50%. And it was just like a machine, basically. We would only spend a couple hundred bucks on advertising every day. We'd always get three to five leads per day. And on the phone, I'd be able to convert usually one out of five. So it was just like a money machine, basically. And you're right. After that, agencies were not a thing back then. Like I said, everyone wanted to be in a startup. Agencies were sort of the thing that you fall back on because you have no choice. But I realized over time, everyone started doing agencies because it was consistent consist cash flow. You could productize a lot more of the, the service. So it was almost like a product-driven service. At my time, it was really just service. There was not much product. There was not much automation. We were trying to systemize things here and there, but the no-code tools that you now have to automate everything didn't exist. So it was not a sexy industry at all. But I did see the shift after that. But that also meant a lot more competition. So getting those sales was harder. 
marketing dollars didn't go as far. The margins were a lot tighter or are still a lot tighter. I think there's definitely a merit to build an agency still because all you're doing is creating or perfecting a certain skill and then scaling that skill and selling it. So I think there's always going to be a need for agencies. I just don't think it's the heydays of agencies like we had for the past 10, 15 years. I think solo entrepreneurs or solopreneurs are still going to exist, but I think agencies, I don't know. I, I just think a lot of the, the services are being automated, are being productized. There's a lot more SaaS now instead of service. And we discuss offline about Dot Yeti being a service, a service agency, but they've tried to build as much of it as a product. So, so essentially you're buying into a product that has a service in the background or an agency in the background. So, yeah. And then what made you start Candy Banners? You already had one agency. What made you think of starting another three years later? <laughs> so it's funny because it's exactly the same reason that made me start the first one is I was sharing this office space with, with Stinson Design. And there was this guy who was a freelancer. He was working for ad agencies as a motion designer and also as sort of a flash coder, flash yeah, developer. And he was, we were traveling once to the Dominican Republic on a kite surfing trip. And I was seeing him work all night on this project. So we got to talking about it. And basically what he is doing, it was he was designing and animating these ad banners on Flash for an ad agency. And I'm super inquisitive about this type of stuff. So I asked him about the type of money that I was generating, the type of work that was required. And after that night of discussing, I told him, dude, we could build a business out of this. You don't have to work on it on your own. I, I have the experience of scaling this type of product. So I can take this idea and build it into a business. And that's how Candy Banners was born, essentially, is I was deciding that enough of him working on his own, let's let's scale it up. So that's how Candy Banners was born. And was there any difference in the way that your experience was um, building Candy Banners versus Stinson Design? There was definitely some a few differences. So the the first difference was that the skill sets required to design, animate, and develop banners is a lot different. For Stinson Design, we just needed graphic designers. For this, we need a bit more technical staff. So that meant it was more costly. So when we started looking for Flash developers in, in Toronto, we realized that the costs were quite high. And the second thing is that the sales funnels were a lot, a lot different from Stinson because for Stinson, it was a very B2B product and every corporation in North America, Europe, Asia, everyone needs presentations, whether it's for product launches, sales meetings, internal discussions or whatever. So the market was huge and having the right advertising or the right SEO on certain keywords meant that I would get traffic to the website. And once they saw the portfolio, they would reach out and it was a, it was a very smooth funnel. With Candy Banners, we were really targeting ad agencies. The one type of company that has the budget for ad banners because their clients have a certain number of banners they want to run for campaigns and they're paying the agencies. And the agency's model is that they don't want any staff almost. They want to subcontract everything out. So they were the only client that would hire Candy Banners. There was no direct report with brands for them to hire us for do, to do banners. They would always hire agencies that would hire us. That's the model that was always in place. And so the sales funnels was a lot more difficult because 
ad agencies are typically not Googling partners if they want an animator or if they want a developer. It's usually network-based or relationship-based hiring. So in order for us to get agencies, we had to tap into our network. We had to do direct sales. We had to do in-person meetings, bring donuts to agencies and sort of try to get them hooked on us and us as people and then us as a, as a team, as a dev team. So the sales, the sales process was completely different and we had to come up with new ways of scaling that. And then I think you only had that acquired maybe three years ago, right? So what's interesting to me is you started Tendo Pay while you were still running that. How do you manage running multiple businesses at a time? <laughs> so I'll get to that. But yeah, you're right. Candy Banners was still operating when we started Stinson, oh, Tendo. <laughs> but I'll explain the reason why Tendo came about and how I ended up in the Philippines in the first place, because I think that's going to be interesting to transition. So I mentioned to you earlier that Flash developers in Toronto were very expensive. And so to remedy that and to be able to have a profitable business, we had to find staff in other places in Toronto. And I did have some experience in the past hiring freelancers on websites like Elance and Upwork for Stinson Design. So I told my partner that we could try to hit up a few subcontractors on this platform on Upwork. The idea was we'd, we'd send them one project. We'd try with like seven or eight different subcontractors and see who has the best output, best communication skills, et cetera. And so we reached out to people in India, people in China, people all over the place. And one of the subcontractor we hired was Filipino. And I didn't know anything about the Philippines back then. So it didn't come to me that they spoke English or anything like that. So when we got the work back from the Filipino guy and the work was really perfect and his communication skills were amazing and he worked overnight, we were just mind blown. And we we're like, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> why, why had I never heard of the Philippines before? So we started giving him more work because he was a re very reliable, cost-efficient, great worker. and. Basically, he had a full-time job, but he was just doing this on the side and you oh, know, more than wow. ever. <laughs> a lot of Filipinos do that, you know, like they have full-time job, but they got to hustle. They got to take extra work, whether it's to support their families or they just have ambitions and they're not scared to work hard. So we had this guy working during the night for us and during the day, he was working at Google, actually. He was a manager there. And at some point, we just had so much work to give him that he said, hey, I have a colleague who's also doing the same thing as I am. Do you mind if I bring him on? We're like, hey, the more the merrier. You trust him, we'll trust him because we trust you. So he brought his him his colleague on and we were just killing it with the sales in Toronto at that point. So we had more work than we could handle basically. So at one point we asked that these two guys if there was a way for us to get them on full time to work for us because that way we could get more output from them. And they were a little hesitant. They really liked us. We had worked already for a couple months together, but they said, look, you know, we have these really well-paid managerial positions at Google working, doing this flash development. So we don't know if we can trust you guys who are in Toronto. We've never met you. We want a bit more security. So literally this is what happened. My partner and I looked at each other and we're like, <laughs> let's just go to the Philippines and try to convince them. <laughs> So that was the first time you went to the Philippines, the first. Absolutely. At that time, you know, we hadn't traveled to Asia much. I had been to China with my parents, but 
we booked a, a flight to Manila via Hong Kong and we're like, okay, let's go for two weeks and see what happens. So we arrived in Manila, we stayed in Makati, we met the guys, we had a great time together, they were really fun, and we really built a good relationship with them. And basically, we told them, look, what do you want from us to make this happen? They said, well, to give us a sense of security, if you could incorporate in the Philippines, get an office here, give us full-time job contracts that we sign in front of you, that'll make us feel confident. And we're like, okay. We can do all that, but the caveat is we're going to bring you a lot more work. Our goal is to scale this really big. Can you find developers for us? And they're like, well, we shouldn't be doing this, but you know, we work with a team of like 100 people at Google that do exactly what you need. We can cherry pick the ones you like or the ones we like, the ones we like working with that are best. And we're like, well, that sounds like a plan, so let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, we we set up operation in, in Manila, did all the legal stuff, however complicated and paperwork heavy it was, we went through that. And over the next few years, we grew the team quite substantially. I think at its peak, we had 30 guys in Manila. And that leads to sort of the next step, which is we were traveling a lot to Manila. We were coming probably three, four times a year to meet the team, to grow and to discuss plans. And we were in this co-working space and basically this co-working space had a few other companies. And one of them was super oddly enough, a friend of mine from university from Montreal. He had built, <laughs> yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, he had built a small business in Manila and one of his interns was Casper actually, our now CEO. He was interning there and then he had started doing more of a sales role, became sort of a sales lead at that company. And we were always bumping into, into each other when I was visiting. He was in the next door office and we were chatting and he knew what our company was doing was tech related. He knew that we were de doing development. And so when Casper had the idea for TendoPay, he came to Jana and me and he said, hey, I have this idea. It's this buy now, pay later. I don't know if you're familiar. We're not really familiar, but we're like, sounds pretty interesting. He said, I'd like to hire you guys as contractors to build an MVP for me, if that's okay, like, or to build a full app. And Jan and I were like, kind of getting tired of candy banners because it was very repetitive. And we had gone through the struggles of scaling it, but we weren't feeling super engaged in the business. And at that point, we were already getting into a space where we could automate a lot of the roles that we were doing. So we weren't as hands-on as before. And this is very important for the next step. And so we told Casper, we're like, the business sounds amazing. You and Camille seem to know a lot about it. And we're interested in the space. And we're actually interested in finding our next project. We could definitely assist you to build this product, but it's going to require a lot more tech work than just a one-time build. So instead of spending a bunch of money and then having to keep investing in it, why don't we just partner and we'll put all our knowledge and our tech resources into it and we'll just build it together. And we all agreed on that scheme and that's how TendoPay was born essentially. And at that point, TendoPay was going to start taking a lot more time. So we had to figure out what to do with Candy Banners. And we kind of thought of selling the business because we weren't as engaged in it. But selling is, you know, it, it was just a couple million dollars in sales a year. And there's not a big market to acquire these types of businesses, especially going through an M&A firm. 
So instead of doing that, we decided let's make sure, like let's put managers in place so that the business is ran without us. So it's kind of fully like self-sufficient in a way. And so we spent a couple months doing that. And at that point, then we just focused fully on Tendopay and didn't work on candy banners anymore. I actually moved to the Philippines at that point. Jan, the business partner, he stayed in, in Toronto because since we brought our tech team onto Tendopay, all of our developers on Tendopay were in Toronto and they still are. So he stayed in Toronto to manage the team. And over a year into Tendopay, one of the clients from Candy Banners essentially wrote us an email. They said, hey, you know, we really like what you guys are doing. And we're thinking they were an agency as well. And they said, we're thinking of expanding our agency into ad banner development. We know you have like this really cool operation. Are you selling it? And we're like, yeah, we can <laughs> sell it. Like we, we only like, we don't even run it. Like it's, it's, it's bringing, it's generating cash flow, but we're more than happy to kind of offload it from our portfolio. And that's how we sold Candy Banner. So it's a super random story, but it worked out perfectly for us. Fascinating. <laughs> it seems like everything happened at the if right If you don't timing. stop me, I can talk forever. So I'm, I have to no, stop I think, myself. I think I like you talking forever. This is fun. <laughs> yeah. It's like the progression of everything is really interesting. So you were maybe five years into Candy Banners when you sort of started getting bored with it and then started doing Pay, and then automated it for maybe one year. Then you got sold. I think four years into Candy, we started automating it and working on Tendo. So, and we sold it after five, if I'm not mistaken. But honestly, my my years could be off. <laughs> and then, what was it like moving to the Philippines? I'm always so curious what it's what it's like for expats to move here, especially with their work. So, the beginning was not so shocking because I was focusing on work, so I didn't really have time to do much else. And Manila is not very different from other big metropolitan cities it's loud and crowded and stuff but so is new york you know what i mean like it wasn't that shocking and you've moved around a lot so i guess you don't get shocked <laughs> yeah exactly and if you're in makati for example the buildings will look a lot similar to north america the restaurants will be quite similar so it's not a big culture shock but then the beauty was that if I wanted to travel somewhere, and I'm talking pre-COVID, if I wanted to travel somewhere, I could take a flight to like this beautiful island. So I, I enjoyed doing things like that and like weekend trips and things like that. So that, that was the big difference, I'd say. And getting cheap massages, I was guilty of doing that as often as possible because in, in Canada, it's $100 for a massage. In Manila, I was paying like 7 to $10 for a totally adequate massage. So I was enjoying that. Oh, true. Like, I think in Canada, you wouldn't even think about going to get any like services like that yeah. at all. <laughs> I only do it when it's medically required and covered by my insurance. I never do it for fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's, it's kind of like when people go to Thailand and they're like, oh, everything is cheap. Let's just keep getting massages over this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I did the same in Thailand. Like everywhere, anytime I'd go to a, a market, I'd just get like a foot massage because it was so cheap. <laughs> Is there anything else that you really liked about the Philippines after moving here? So, I mean, I loved a lot of things. First of all, I met incredible people in the Philippines. Most of my friends now are people that I met in the Philippines, whether it's expats or locals. I have a ton of friends that I'm still in touch with. I've been expatriated from the Philippines for a couple of years now for personal reasons, but I'm coming back to Asia in a couple of months. So I'm really excited to, to reconnect with all these friends. 
So I'm a huge fan of sort of extreme sports, dirt biking, kitesurfing and stuff like that. And wakeboarding has <laughs> wakeboarding. I love that. So the Philippines was a perfect destination for all sports that I liked. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big tropical person. So this type of weather is something I love wearing shorts and flip-flops every day, even to the office is, is my style. So I was really in love with that. And I'm obsessed with mangoes as well. So you're well served if you like tropical fruits in the Philippines. And yeah, people just smiling all the time is very different than, you know, I'm not going to badmouth Canada or North America, but people are a lot more individualistic here. And they stay in their lane. They kind of, it's very rare when you make eye contact in the Philippines, you're always making eye contact and smiling and saying hi and random interactions like that. So I really like that. And what was it like building Tendopay in the Philippines? Maybe it was the first time you tried to build something in a more foreign country. Oh, yeah. At least with Canada, you'd been there for a few years, right? So what was that experience? Yeah, I was well-versed with sales in Canada and North America overall. So that was a big culture shock. So building building Tendopay at first was really a technological play. So it was not very different from what I knew. Of course, it's fintech. There's a lot of red tape getting certifications and licenses and this and that and as much as i do that the philippines has sort of long and difficult processes for a lot of things including corporation and getting all these certifications and so that was always kind of the difficult part but building the tech in itself was seamless we were building mvps iterating getting users through the normal digital marketing channels that i'm familiar with in a, in a way, it was also much easier to acquire users in the Philippines because advertisers, at least back then, were not that prevalent on Facebook and Instagram and, and even Google. So you weren't competing with many people. So acquiring traffic was super interesting and fun. So it's like a marketer's dream to be there, especially at that time. I don't know if it's still the case, but now we're focusing a lot more B2B. So I'm not doing as much of that digital acquisition. But then... Once, because we've pivoted quite a few things in Tendopay over the years, and now we're focused on a B2B2C model where we acquire companies that will then provide Tendopay as an employee benefit to their employees. And that's all we're doing. We're not acquiring any other users from organic or any other sort of method. So the company turned into sort of a sales first approach where we have to build a sales team. We have to go after different corporations in the country. And that's when the culture shock was the biggest because I was very comfortable and used to selling in North America. And I knew that if you connect with the right person, you present your product properly and they see an ROI, they will make the decision to go with you because it makes sense financially. In the Philippines, what I realized is that you have to make sense financially, that's fine, but you have to build a really long and slow emotional connection and bond with the people you're selling to. And they want to be charmed. They want to be basically, they want to build that connection with you as a person before trusting your company. They'll trust you. They won't trust your company. So I realized the sale process was very long and you had to take your time. You have to do a lot of follow-ups, build that relationship. And so essentially like sales cycle that I was used to were more in a matter of days or weeks, whereas in the Philippines, it met, the minimum was a few months. And in some cases, some companies we signed as of recently, I look back in my emails and my first touch point with them was two years ago. 
And it just takes that long. Yeah. It just takes that long for, well, we're often talking to corporations that have thousands and thousands of employees. So first of all, there's a lot of decision makers and things to go through, but also they want to become a part of you. They want to make sure that you're there for long term. It's almost like they're testing you. They're like, how many times is he going to follow up with me? Is he going to still be in a good mood at the next meeting? Like, That's it's true. So interesting. It's a very different approach. That was my biggest culture shock with the Philippines was the sales process of my business. What was the hardest part of building Pay in the past several years of building it? If there's any one moment that you can point towards? Yeah, I mean... It's been challenging, trust me, from the moment we started it to the time we got acquired by Tonic, it has been nonstop challenging. And I think you always look at startups, especially in North America, where they have this product or even a piece of paper and they raise millions of dollars because VCs are super excited. When we started fundraising for our pre-seed and we were going after angels because VCs were not even investing in pre-seed. Like iterative came a bit later and those players kind of changed the game. But when we started fundraising, there was barely any money in Southeast Asia. And it took like a ton of convincing. And we already had a big, a lot of traction, but it was very, very tough to get the first money. And every round after that was just as tough as the previous one, if not more. And one of the biggest challenges actually that we faced was, and we didn't realize this early on. And we're not very smart. We just act more than we think. But it was a super capital intensive product, meaning that we're lending money. So that money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And so not only did we have to raise money for our operations, we had to raise money for our loan portfolio. And we didn't realize how tricky that would be because Philippine has a reputation with loans whereby there's a lot of loan sharks, there's a lot of loads of defaults in result of that. And so when you say to an investor, oh, I'm lending money in the Philippines, they're like, uh, okay, <laughs> like, Never mind. what's your recovery rate? <laughs> what's this and that? And they got really tricky. And so raising money for the loan portfolio was extremely, extremely difficult. And we managed to build this incredible product, which where our default rates are just ridiculously low for the Philippines. I mean, everyone sort of looks at it and envies it. But even for us, having built that, it was tough raising money. So I'd say that was the most challenging. Raising money overall was really, really challenging. And I, I'm really ex- excited to see how things are changing now. There's a lot more VC money and especially VC money going towards Philippines because it used to be really Indonesia-centric when we were raising. And now right. money is finally coming to the Philippines and people are realizing that, hey, this is a really good market. There's so many opportunities, so many talented people. So I'm super happy about that, basically. I'm sure it was really difficult because maybe some investors hadn't even heard of the Philippines or hadn't heard of any startups from the Philippines. (laughs) Exactly. It always takes a few startups to sort of create momentum. And Indonesia was just lucky because it had all these early startups that had raised a ton of money. And investors, they look at that and they're like, well, we're going to follow where the money's going. So right. It's like a snowball effect, right? So Indonesia was getting all the all the VC money for a while, and it took a while for it to trickle to other countries, including the Philippines. And then like managing a team in the Philippines, was there any kind of difficulties that you had running the business? I don't know if it's if there are different factors, like maybe because there are lots of different co-founders, was that more difficult? Is it more difficult running a team as a foreigner? Or maybe all of those are wrong assumptions. So I'm super curious. (laughs) 
No, I mean, so first of all, it's interesting because having four co-founders is kind of frowned upon in most startups. But I'm actually glad we were that many because, first of all, this company is very complex. Tendope has so many different things from compliance, legal, technical, finance, sales. It's like a really complex machine and everyone has a very specific role. And without each other, this would fall apart, basically. So I'm super glad we have this founding team, even though it's not optimal for most companies. And then for like managing teams, I think, especially at an early stage, a lot of the people that we were trying to hire, sort of fact that we were a startup and these expats, and they were like, not super trusting of the fact that we could accomplish something in the Philippines. And they're always wondering, like, first of all, why are you guys here? Why, why are you, you know, in the Philippines? And you're a startup and we want to work in a big company. So it was very hard to attract talent at first. But as we grew and now I think we're close to 75 people, now we're attracting sort of like the cream of the crop, really talented people because they're seeing that we took it to a certain level. It's been over four years close to five, I think. And we've built something amazing and like people really want to work with us. And now they trust the fact that these four expats managed to build something in the Philippines. And it's like really fun dynamic. I've had a lot of fun managing the team in the Philippines. It's just, for me, at least it's, I don't really think about like, oh, different cultures and things like that, because I've been exposed to so many. But I do enjoy the fact that there's diversity because I have my opinions on certain things and my way of thinking, but I'm the type of guy who will always ask the room what their thoughts are. And for sales, that was a super important thing because I had my ways of selling and I had my ideas. But then when I was asking my sales team, I'm like, do you think this makes sense? And like, they're always adapt my thoughts to the local sort of flavor or local culture and the way we're selling is entirely thanks to how they thought about it and how they approached it because they knew how to best match what Filipino companies were looking for. And if I had sold it the way I wanted to sell, we probably wouldn't have as many sales as we do now. You know what I mean? I see. So you're telling me that having four co-founders is actually useful because the company has a lot of different functions and is very complex. Yes. Do you think that's something about fintech or something more about working in the loans sector? Well, I think fintech overall is is usually a, a tough industry because working with money implies a lot of compliance issues. Usually even the product, the tech is not as straightforward as your typical SaaS or your typical consumer-friendly product. It has a lot of security issues because you're managing money, you're managing personal information, you're managing financial information. So our CTO's work is not just development, it's really around security and compliance and all those things that you wouldn't see in a regular product. Right. So yeah, I'd say fintech and loans are just a very complex industry. So yeah. Super interesting. And then like now after being acquired, what does your day-to-day look like? Are you still the same level in terms of activity in the business? Like, are you still as hands-on as before? Just for anybody More. who's looking to get acquired or in the process. So yeah, like many acquisitions, ours came with an earnout, meaning we had a certain time period where we had to still work at the company. That was number one. But on top of that, we had to reach certain goals, which were quite aggressive. And we're still in that process. So we're still doing our earnout. 
And to answer your question, we're actually still completely independent, basically. So our acquirer has given us these guidelines and they all obviously check in on us and we have to report to them. But they haven't absorbed our teams and we're not a part of their team in any way. So we're still running the, the shows relatively independently. But now we have these super aggressive targets that we have to meet. And that means that our workload is, if not the same, more than it used to be just to achieve these targets. So it's very hands-on, but it's actually super exciting because we don't have to worry about those you know, things that I told you, which were complicated, which was fundraising. Like Now we don't have the headache of raising money for our operations. We definitely don't have the headache of raising money for our portfolio, loan portfolio. So that out of the way, we can really focus on what value we bring to the table, which is getting more users, making our user experience more interesting. And yeah, it's a lot more fun work in the sense that we don't have to worry about raising money. And when we got acquired, we had like a couple months left to live. And initially, we wanted to raise Series B, but it happened during the COVID and when funds start drying up and it was just super difficult. So we're happy in a way that this acquisition came through because a couple months later, we would have just died. <laughs> and having gotten your companies acquired in the past few years, how does that feel? Like, do you feel like a part of you is getting taken away or do you not feel like any gap or anything being taken out? I mean, it's always interesting to see that a project is going to someone else in a way, but I don't feel any emotional Lost because first of all, we're still in the business and there's no plan where we're leaving the business right now. We're, we've got acquired, but we're still working on it. And that's for the foreseeable future. I'd say that the, the biggest emotional factor was when I sold my first business because that was my first. And I don't know if that's the same case with your children because I don't have any yet, but there's this attachment to your first, I think. And it was really my baby and I built it from the ground up and I, I felt a lot of emotional connection to it. So selling that one was difficult. And I think back to it every now and then and, and think, what if I had kept it and things like that. But now business has become more transactional, meaning there's a cool niche, there's a cool product. Let's build it out. Let's follow this step, this action plan to reach certain milestones. And then if selling is part of one of those milestones, then that's just business. I don't get emotional about it anymore. So the sentiment was more of with Stinson, but not really as much with like Candy Manners or Tendo Pay. Yeah, absolutely. Did it get easier over time or does it feel the same with Candy Banners and Tendo Pay now? Completely, yeah. I think it, it really decreased after the first one. Like I said, it, it's become transactional in the sense that someone's just acquiring the value that you've built and the value that you've built is the result of you finding a, a gap that you had to fill. So it's, it's more like a video game where you're building this product because that's what you do. And then selling it is just an extra step on it and nothing more to it. Then how does it feel like after selling a company? I'm sure they give you like, I guess, some amount of money. Do you feel accomplished? Do you end up having like a plan of what to do with the money? Do you feel like you have to build something after? Like, what does the post-acquisition season feel? Yeah, so the money is an interesting question because I remember when I didn't have any, it meant everything and that was my ultimate goal. And after making some, now I don't really think about it that much. More that what I worry more is about preserving that money and not like wasting it or losing it. And 
I just want to have it somewhere safe whereby I can support my lifestyle without having to think about it too much. But I'm always thinking what's next. Like, how do I make sure that I keep making money and I never have to tap into what I've made? And maybe that's because I've never made enough that it, it didn't matter. But yeah, I, I haven't thought about how to spend it, but more how to not waste it and not lose it. That's more how my focus has shifted. And then how did you figure out not to waste it? Do you ask people for like financial advice? Do you put into savings? Do you have to invest it? How does that all work? <laughs> yes. So that's a really good question. And I wish I had a good answer for it. What every book and every smart person will tell you is just to put it in indexes or buy some real estate or stuff like that. I've been stupid and I've invested in stocks that I picked myself. And sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. Overall, I think I'm net net neutral, which is lucky because <laughs> I could have lost some. But now I'm a lot more cautious. So I do buy very boring indexes. And I've bought a bit of real estate here in Canada. And I think once the earnout and the acquisition goes through completely, I'll probably do the same. So very boring stuff. I have done some angel investing though. So obviously like it's kind of entrepreneurship 2.0 where instead of putting all the work yourself, you put your money to work and you advise and you sort of bring the highest value that you can bring to someone else, whether it's financially or, or also sort of intellectually. And I definitely dedicate a portion of what I have to angel investing. I've done a bit in Southeast Asia. And that's definitely something I'm going to continue doing because it keeps me excited, it keeps me in the game. So if ever I build something else, then great. But for sure, I will be involved with other startups through investments. How do you think about like angel investing? Is that more of something to stay an entrepreneur in another way, like through other people? Or do you see it in a different way? Yeah, I don't do angel investing to make money because I'm not that sophisticated. And like, <laughs> it's just as, as bad as stock picking for me. I always invest on people that I trust or businesses that I think are interesting, but I have no ROI planned into it. If I make money, then great. If not, then probably I didn't advise them very well or I didn't choose them very well. But I do do it for the sake of sort of staying in the game and especially to get involved in projects that I wouldn't have built myself, but I found interesting. I think that's one way to, to have one foot in the door. So yeah, that's how I see it. I think it's been a great conversation. And I want to close with the one question I ask everybody on the podcast, and that is outside of work. So that's outside of Tendo Pay and any angel investing you do. What's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? So I've recently become really fond of chess and i know i'm late to the game again my parents <laughs> didn't expose me to chess at all but and it's not related to the queen's gambit although i did watch it and enjoyed it but someone in the philippines actually exposed me to chess during covid and you know i didn't really understand what the whole point was and he was playing it every day and about a year ago, I started playing and got super passionate about it. And now I do have a personal goal of hitting a certain ELO. I don't think I should disclose it because it's not even that impressive. But <laughs> I have personal goals of reaching a certain ELO every year for the foreseeable future so that I can teach my kids so they can maybe become grandmasters. That's my personal goal. Okay, thank you. That is super interesting. Well, I really appreciated this conversation with you, Tim. I learned a lot and I, I genuinely enjoyed the whole conversation. I appreciate you saying that, Amanda. It was really fun. Great format. <laughs>